So late one night in July of 2002, 240 feet below the ground beneath a farm in Pennsylvania, 27 miners took a wrong turn. And because they took a wrong turn in this mine shaft, they came to a wall that was not the wall that they expected. The rock wall that they expected was hundreds of feet deep and would have taken a while for them to drill through, but the wall that they were at was only a few feet deep, and behind it was an ocean of water. And so when they began to drill through the wall, they quickly penetrated it, and 72 million gallons of water flooded the mine shaft that they were in. 18 of the miners were able to flee and get to safety, but nine of them remained in this mine shaft, which seemed certain to become their watery grave. But thankfully for them, above them, a rescue effort took place, and the next morning, the quiet farm, what had been a quiet farm, was home to Pennsylvania's largest ever rescue, eff uh, rescue effort. And they began drilling holes through to the miners so that they would have oxygen. And then they used satellite imagery to figure out exactly where they would be down there so that they could drill a hole 240 feet deep into the earth directly to the pocket of the mine shaft where these nine miners were stranded and basically use an elevator system to bring them out. And so it worked. Uh, they drilled the hole through. All nine miners were rescued from what seemed certain to be their forever resting place, and they were saved. And I imagine if I were one of them or if I were one of their family members or maybe even if I were one of the rescue uh, people, I would have thought I just witnessed or was a part of a miracle. And to some degree, I would be correct. But even though that was an incredible rescue effort that certainly had God's hand in it in some ways, it was nothing compared to what we're going to read today. Today we're going to pick up our sermon series in Exodus. Exodus 13 and 14 is where we'll be. So you can go ahead and turn there. At the end of Exodus 12, well, throughout Exodus 12, we read about the tenth plague. The Pharaoh's resolve has finally been broken. For the first nine plagues, over and over, God demonstrated that he was greater than the gods of Egypt and, and he was greater than Pharaoh himself. But Pharaoh remained uh, entrenched in his belief that he was not going to humble himself before God. He was not going to release his slaves, the Israelites. But with the tenth plague, uh, the angel of the Lord came through, you might remember, and killed all of the firstborn of Egypt while coming to all of the Israelite houses, and in faith they had killed, uh, killed their lamb and they had put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And as God promised, when the angel saw the, lamb, uh, saw the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, it passed over their houses. That's where the name Passover comes from. And so finally the Egyptians wake up, Pharaoh wakes up. Scripture says there wasn't one house in Egypt that didn't have someone dead in it. And so that was enough. That was the final straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And Pharaoh and the Egyptians said, just go. Leave. Take whatever you want. Have all of our riches. Anything you want. Just, just go. And so they did. So they left. And that, that's where we're picking up today in Exodus 13. Like I said, we'll go through 14. And because we have such a big passage, I'm, we're going to have to hit high notes. We're not going to be able to read it word for word the way that we like to typically. 
But at the beginning of Exodus 13, if you look in your Bibles, you'll, you'll see the very first thing that God tells the Israelites to do is consecrate their firstborn to God's service. And that's firstborn of children and of animals. Firstborn of everything in Israel, you consecrate them to God's service. Now keep in mind, this is before they even get to the Red Sea. In, in my mind, when the Israelites leave Egypt, oftentimes I just fast forward and skip over Exodus 13, and I just take the Israelites to the Red Sea. But even before that, Exodus 13 is happening, where God says immediately, consecrate your firstborn to me. God wanted the Israelites to remember that he had spared their firstborn. Your firstborn are mine, and, and, and I want you to remember all that I did in Egypt, and that I spared your firstborn. So in, in one sense, God is creating in Israel, a heart of worship because they're giving their firstborn to God's service. But on the other side, he's, he's creating a built-in reminder for the Israelites, don't forget. Don't forget. And then right after he tells them to consecrate their children or their firstborn to his service, he institutes the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that was supposed to be an annual feast that they keep every single year much for the same reason, to remind them of all that he did for them. Uh, if we read in Exodus 13, look at 8, uh, verse 8, you'll see uh, where God's explaining to Moses uh, the, what they're supposed to say to their children on the days of the unle Feast of Unleavened Bread. He said, You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it, shall be a sign, and it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep his statute at the appointed time from year to year. God wanted Israel to remember what he had done. And so he was building things into their calendar and into their lives firstborn and, and this first feast, many more feasts would follow, to remind them of his goodness to question God. So I think when we're reading about the Israelites, we need to, we need to try our best to give them grace <laughs> because we need grace. And what God's putting in their calendars and in their lives as built-in reminders, I think we would be wise to do the same because we have the same tendencies. So then as Exodus 14 comes about, the Israelites are still following the cloud and following the fire. And God was leading them, but he was leading them kind of in an unorthodox way. They've probably been traveling three to four weeks at this point, and they're still close to Egypt. They're still close enough to Egypt to where Egypt can monitor their movements. And Egypt's confused and, and thinks, ah, they're lost. They've got to be lost. Why would they continue going in this circle? And then they wind up parking by the Red Sea. And when they parked by the Red Sea and God told Moses to face, have the Israelites facing the Red Sea, Pharaoh concludes they have no idea where they are. Let's go get our slaves back. Let's, let's, let's go. Why did we ever let them go in the first place? But that's exactly what God wanted to happen. We see what God told Moses in Exodus 13, 3 and 4. God speaking to Moses, 
And he says, For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering through the land. The wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And so that's, that's when the Israelites parked by the Red Sea. And then things began to progress exactly the way that God told Moses that it would progress. And you would think that that would guard the, Egypt, the Israelites from doubting and from worrying, but, but it didn't. As they began to see uh, everything unfold exactly the way that God said to Moses that it would, and, and the Egyptian army is drawing near, we see their resolve begin to waver. We see that they begin to panic a little bit because the Egyptians are coming and they're going to kill us. So they said to Moses, Exodus 14, 11, and 12, they looked at Moses in their despair and they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. This is another point where God was just far more gracious than I would be. Because if I put myself in God's position, and they've just seen me do all of these miracles and deliver them from, from the Egyptian uh, oppressor, oppressors, and they are still in this moment looking at my cloud and my fire. They see that I'm still there, and yet this is their response. At that point, I would just say, all right, Egypt, have them. I'll, I'll, I'll start over. But God, but God is far more gracious than I am. And so, so God tells Moses, go to the Red Sea, lift up your rod, lift your hand over the Red Sea, and I'm going to divide it. And I'm going to make the ground dry so that the people of Israel can walk across the Red Sea. And I'll put my angel behind you so that the Egyptian army can't overtake you and you will cross to safety. And so um, Moses did what God said. He obeyed and God did exactly what he said he would do. So a strong wind comes over, Scripture says, and it divides the sea and puts a wall of water up on the right and the left. The ground is dry and the Israelites pass through to safety with the angel of the Lord behind them, protecting them from the Egyptian army until they got all the way to safety. And then we see, uh, we'll read in a moment, that when the Egyptians came through, the water collapsed on them and killed the entire Egyptian army. I don't want us to miss how big of a miracle this was. First, let's think about how, how many people was in Israel. Israel was a group of slave people who had become so numerous that even though they did not have an army, we remember from earlier in Exodus that Pharaoh and the Egyptians became worried that they would overthrow them. So Israel is thousands of people big. They've got children, they've got animals, they've plundered the Egyptians, so they've got all of their treasure, and they're about to walk through. So let's not think about a little narrow hallway through the Red Sea. Let's think of a really big water corridor with walls of water, big enough for thousands of people with animals and treasures and children to pass through. And then in addition to that, let's think about how far this parting of the Red Sea would have had to have been. On the conservative end, 
the shortest amount of distance, it was, it's likely that they would have traveled where, from where they were parked to where they crossed over the Red Sea, would have been 12 miles. So that means from one bank to the other, they wouldn't have been able to see. All they would have been able to see is from where I'm standing, I can just see water. And God spreads it out. And the depth of that water would have been minimum 230 foot deep. So, so in Mississippi speak, <laughs> that is from where we are today at Harvest Church to Bass Pro Shop in Pearl, that far, with walls of water of, on both sides, 23 floors high at least, and wide enough for thousands of people to walk through. That distance with that many people with that much possessions would have taken the Israelites at least a full day to walk through. So we need to understand this was a major act of deliverance by God. This was no small feat. This was a major miracle that God did in providing the Israelites salvation from the Egyptian army. They were going to come and they were going to kill them, but God provided salvation. Here's a gift. And then on the other side of that, we see the Egyptians were destroyed when they tried to pass through in the same way that the Israelites did. And so the synopsis of all of these events is in Exodus 14, 26 through 31. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course, when the morning appeared, and as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all of the hosts of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord that he used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. God had triumphed over the gods of Egypt. He had triumphed over Pharaoh, and now he has triumphed over Pharaoh's military. God has made it clear to the Egyptians and to the Israelites and to the whole world that would hear about this news that he was indeed the most high God. He had made that very clear. So all of this is an amazing historical event for us to think about and to reflect on and to consider what it would have looked like. But what relevance does it have for us today as New Testament believers 2,000 years later? Well, I think two things, well at least two things, that we're going to consider uh, for the rest of our time today. And it's that this event at the Red Sea foreshadowed or, or prefigured two really important principles that we find in the New Testament. So we'll spend the rest of our time today uh, focusing on those two things and, and the way that we'll understand that the events of Exodus 14 were uh, foreshadows of, of what was to come later on in the New Testament is because we're going to use the New Testament authors to interpret these events. We're going to read these events through the eyes of the New Testament authors and see, how it, uh, see what it means today.
So those two principles, the first one is going to be that salvation is a gift that comes by God's grace and it has to be received by faith. And that's always been God's plan for salvation. Salvation has always been a gift that comes by His grace, but it must be received through faith. And the second principle that we're going to consider is that God's plan has always been, from the beginning of the Bible, His plan has always been that everyone who receives His salvation, that's a gift, that everyone who receives that salvation by faith be baptized into Christ. So we'll start with the first one. Salvation is a gift that must be received by faith. Hebrews 11 is a, a chapter that's all about the heroes of our faith. It's, uh, some have called it the, the hall of faith because it's just person after person after person after person who embodied the faith that God desires to see in his people. And, and it's, a, it's an encouragement for us to emulate their faith, for us to uh, be like them in that regard. And so in that chapter... Israel is compared to people like Noah and Abraham and Jacob and so many others, specifically when they cross the Red Sea. Look at Hebrews 11.29. If the words will be on the screen if you don't want to turn there. But in Hebrews 11.29 it says, By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. There's a sense in which the Israelites could not or would not have received God's gift of salvation from the Egyptian army had they not had faith. That's not because their faith somehow enabled God to save them, and it's not because their faith in itself saved them, but it's because of the way that God arranged things. God arranged things so that they would have to walk in faith, they would have to believe Him, and walk through the Red Sea if they were going to receive the gift of salvation that he was offering them. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Ephesians uh, 2, 8, and 9 talks about this, and, and I want us to read this and then consider what God was calling the Israelites to do, because it, it, although it was written about our salvation as believers in Jesus, it could have been a narration of what we're seeing in Exodus 14. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Consider the way that God decided to save Israel from, from the Egyptian army. He brought them to the Red Sea, and he spread out the waters. Like I said, they couldn't see the other end. There were walls of water on both sides, more than 20 floors high. And they had to trust God, believe God, and walk through that. They had every reason to look at that and say, mm -mm. <laughs> nope, <laughs> not going that way. What if I get halfway through and then God changes his mind and lets the water go? We're all going to die. We're all dead. Let's find another way. Let's put rafts together. Let's try to walk in our circle through the wilderness again. Let's run. Or, hey, let's surrender. Let's just say, hey, you know, we, we were wrong. We shouldn't have left. Please don't kill us. They had all of these options that they could have done, but they had faith. 
God had brought them to a place where they, they would see his power. They saw him split the Red Sea. But that in itself didn't save them. They had to have faith so that they would walk. Faith was the means by which they received God's gift of salvation. Again, I want to I stress their salvation was not um, produced by the Israelites. God saved the Israelites. God parted the Red Sea. God made the ground dry. God put his angel behind them to protect them uh, from the Egyptian army that was coming. God brought them all the way through. But none of that would have happened because of the way that God arranged it. None of that would have happened had they not had faith. Salvation is a gift that comes by faith. And that plan of salvation has been God's plan of salvation from the beginning. That didn't start in the New Testament. But with that great foreshadowing of what was to come and God's plan of salvation for the whole world and not just Egypt, not just Israel in that one moment, was also a warning. We read in Hebrews eleven twenty nine that by faith uh, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. We could read that and think, that the author of Hebrews was just finishing the story. But I don't think that's the case because if you read Hebrews 11, what you'll find is that the only people save two instances, this one and one very similar to it, that follows it immediately actually, only in two instances in Hebrews 11 is someone mentioned who didn't have faith. The entire chapter is only about people who had faith that pleased God people who we're supposed to emulate, people who we're encouraged to follow after. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, attempted to cross the Red Sea, they were drowned. That's, an, that's a warning. That's a warning to the readers of Hebrews that, yes, this gospel of, of God's grace, of salvation that comes by faith, is a great thing. So have faith, be encouraged, have faith, emulate these people Israelites in this moment, emulate them because God, God has great promise for those who believe in Jesus, who, who have faith. But there's also a warning for those who don't. The Egyptians tried to follow the Israelites through the same path. And in doing so, they, I'm sure, un, unknowingly, and they didn't realize what they were doing, but they were very much lacking in proper fear of God. And they were presuming on his kindness. They saw his mercy towards the Israelites and they thought that they could partake in that too. But the Israelites were receiving God's mercy because they had faith and because they were, they were acting according to God's promises. The, the Egyptians were not doing that. And so when the Egyptians tried to follow the same course that the Israelites took, a very different fate befell them. They received God's judgment because they presumed on his kindness. They didn't fear him. They were not acting in faith. And there are a lot of people today who I think if, if they were asked, you know, the, the age-old question, if you died today, where would you go? Their answer would be something along the lines of, I'd, I'd 
I hope I'd go to heaven, or I think I'd go to heaven. I, I think God would take me because I've done, you know, I went to church and I was baptized or I worked in charities or any of a million good things that they've done. And I would say, you know, I hope based on these that God would have mercy on me. But I think the warning that we see in Hebrews and the warning that we see throughout Scripture is that if we come before God and we're standing to give account of ourselves in the same way that all of us are going to one day and everyone who has ever lived has had to do, there's two ways that we can do it. One, we can presume on God's kindness and we can lack proper fear of God, much in the same way that the Egyptians did. Or we can come by faith and we can say because of Jesus, because he promised that if I believed in him, that I would have eternal life, that I wouldn't have to pay the penalty of my sins because, because of what he did. I'm coming in faith. Those who come in faith have been promised to receive the gift of salvation. But no matter how good your intentions, no matter how good, humanly speaking, your life has been, Scripture is clear that all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. And all of us have a penalty to pay for that. And Jesus has promised to pay that penalty for everyone who believes in him. But everyone who doesn't believe in him, they're, they're going to pay their own penalty. So the Israelites came to the Red Sea and they see this corridor for them to walk through and they have a decision to make. I'm either going to make my own way and the Egyptians are going to certainly catch up with me and kill me or I'm going to have faith and I'm going to go the way that God has given me. And they went the way that God had provided them and they were saved because God keeps his promises. To the New Testament believers, Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the light. No one comes to the Father except through me. The, at the Red Sea, the Israelites had one way, and we also have one way. Theirs was a corridor of water, ours was a person, the God-man Jesus Christ. And without faith in him, we will not receive the gift of salvation that has been freely offered to everyone who has ever lived. If you just believe in Jesus, it's yours but it can only be received by faith. The second, the second principle that we're not going to spend a ton of time on, but that I do want us to look at, is that baptism into Christ has always been God's plan for everyone who would believe in Jesus. And you think, ah, I don't know how you got there, and that might be a stretch. <laughs> but I'm going to appeal to the Apostle Paul. Uh, and I think what he sees in it, I can see in it. And so 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is talking to some Corinthians who seem to have bought into the belief that having been baptized into Christ would somehow protect them from whatever judgment might befall them for taking part in pagan idolatry that was just part of the culture in which they lived. And so in 1 Corinthians 10, starting in verse 1, Paul begins um, to appeal to them based on what we just read in Exodus 14. In 1 Corinthians 1, 10, starting in verse 1, 
It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed under the sea and were all baptized into Moses, who we remember from our summer series was a type of Christ, was a foreshadowing of Christ. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And then skip to verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Paul's point was clear. The Israelites had been baptized into Moses through the Red Sea, and yet when they came out of the Red Sea and their hearts wandered and they took part in idolatry, we all remember, those of us familiar with our Bibles, know that they were judged over and over and over when their hearts would wander. And so Paul's drawing a parallel between the baptism that they received into Moses and the baptism that the Corinthian believers would have received when they were baptized into Christ. And Paul says it's a parallel. It's one was a foreshadow of the other, and it was so that it would be an example for us, that we wouldn't desire evil. Paul's saying, listen, you having been baptized into Christ will not protect you from God's judgment should your heart stray, should you go after other gods. But the only reason that Paul could draw that parallel, the only reason that Paul could say that these things were an example for us is because in what happened at the Red Sea, Paul saw God foreshadowing what was to come. God's desire has always been that those who were saved by him, received his gift of salvation, would be baptized into Christ. Think about the order of things in at the Red Sea, Israel had faith, they received the gift of salvation, and they were baptized into Moses, who was a type of Christ. What does the Great Commission say? What does the New Testament show us is the pattern? You have faith, you receive the gift of salvation, you're baptized into Christ. Last Sunday, we talked a lot about baptism, and so I'm not going to belabor that point anymore. If you weren't here for that and you want to know more about baptism, why we do it the way we do it, um, and what the New Testament teaches about baptism, I strongly encourage you to go back. It's, it's online. Go back and listen to it. Kyle did an excellent job with it. But for today, the main point I want to make in that is that that's not something that Jesus invented at the Great Commission. That's something that God has intended to be a part of his plan for every single person who ever receives his gift of salvation through faith in Jesus that they would receive his gift by faith and that they would be baptized into Christ. That has always been God's plan. So today, I want us to leave here with two main takeaways. First, God saved the Israelites by his grace as a gift that they received by faith, and that's the same way that he saves us. Secondly, believers' baptism Receiving God's gift of salvation and being baptized into Christ has always been a part of God's plan for everyone who would ever believe in Jesus. The Israelites had to have faith. We have to have faith. Jesus is the only way for us to be saved. He's the only way for us to stand before a holy God and be pardoned for our sins. He's the only way for us to have eternal life. He's the only way. 
And so if you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, if you haven't believed in him, that gift is for you. The appeal is to you that you would put your faith in Jesus, that you would realize that you are not standing on firm ground, that you are in fact in the place of the Egyptians who were destroyed by God because they were judged for presuming on his kindness and acting outside of faith. And if your faith is not in Jesus right now, you're going to stand before God, and I don't know when, but you will. All of us will. And if our faith is not in Jesus, then we are, we are going to suffer the same fate as the Egyptians. And so if, if your faith has not been pl- placed in Jesus, I, I pray that you'll do that today, now, in this moment. Don't wait. But then secondly, if you've done that, you've put your faith in Jesus, but you haven't been baptized since putting your faith in Jesus, I, I pray that you would hear, hear what Scripture says. This, this is God's plan for everyone who receives his gift of salvation, that they would be baptized into Christ. That's his plan. And it's been his plan for a long time, a long time before we were ever born. It was his plan for you, if you have ever put your faith in Jesus. And so if you haven't done that today, I encourage you, to take a step of obedience and, and, and be baptized into Christ. That's his plan. But for those of us who are here and we've, we've put our faith in Jesus, we've received by faith God's gift of salvation, and we've also followed in obedience and we've been baptized, I want us to take our instruction and our encouragement from Exodus 13. Our hearts are just as prone to wander as the Egyptians. Our minds are just as quick to focus on our problems and on on the things that create anxieties and worries in us as were the Israelites. We need to put things in our lives, not just uh, Sunday church is one thing. That's one way that we continually remind ourselves of the gift that we've been given, of the greatness of our God, the one who loved our soul and saved our soul. But we need more than that. We need to be in constant community with other believers. We need to fill our minds with truths from God. We need to fill our calendars and our schedule with things that remind us of his faithfulness and of his goodness so that we won't give in to anxiety and so that our hearts won't wander. Because if we don't, they will. (laughs) So let's do that so that we can live lives that are pleasing to God, that are filled with expressions of gratitude and of worship to God. So whatever, whatever your step of obedience is here, and we all have steps of obedience to take. Anytime we come to Scripture, we walk away with steps of obedience to take. And no response is in itself a response. And so whatever it is that the Holy Spirit is stirring within you to do in your own life, I pray that you'll take that step and take it immediately, because the longer we wait, uh, the more likely it is that we will harden our hearts to the Holy Spirit and we won't do what he's calling us to do. So in a moment, Stephen's going to come back and he's going to lead us in worship. Uh, Evan and Blaine, uh, our family pastor, and one of our deacons will be standing in the back of the room and they would love nothing more than to talk with you about salvation, of faith, baptism, or anything else. Pray for you in whatever way. Uh, would encourage you and and help you walk in a right response to God's word today. So I pray that you would give us that opportunity and that you would be encouraged and that you would walk 
uh, in obedience to the things that whatever the Holy Spirit is stirring in your heart today. So I'm going to pray and then Stephen's going to come. Father God, thank you so much for uh, going before us, for showing us in Scripture that you have planned to save us in the way that you saved us for a long, long, long time before the creation of the world. God, this was your plan, that it would be a gift of salvation that we wouldn't have to work for, that we wouldn't have to maintain, but that you would just give it to us if we would just believe you are who you say you are and you have done what you have said you, you would do. And God, that you will do what you say you will do. God, I pray that you would uh, encourage our hearts in these moments as Stephen leads us to worship. God, I pray that uh, for those of us whose proper right response is just to respond in worship, uh, God, I pray that you would create that worship in our hearts and, and, and be pleased with our response. But God, for those of us who need to put our faith in Jesus for the first time, God, I pray that you would um, lead us to do that and, and give confidence and assurance where it needs to be given. God, I pray that you would um, lead anyone who needs to take steps in, of obedience to be baptized or, or anything else that might be stirring in their hearts, God. Um, Lord, I pray against any spirit that would keep them um, from doing your will. God, I pray that you would be pleased with our lives, that, you would be, that we would all live in a way that honors you and glorifies you. And God, I pray that uh, you would help us to know you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.